Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Kathy Sheridan. Roisin Engel, fresh back from London, glowing. Uh, yes, that's what, what being in it? Michelle Obama's company sends a glow across lots of women's faces. Tell us about it. Uh, We're oh, all very jealous. Lovely. I know, I, got, I never got so many texts from people going, can't believe it, you could have let me carry your bags, all this kind of thing from friends. and Because um, I didn't really tell many people because I kind of knew they'd be at yeah. me, so I didn't tell him. And then I just arrived tweeting from the Royal Festival Hall in the South Bank Centre where Michelle was doing a talk with feminist icon Shimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who is also a very wonderful person too. So there we all were. John Snow was sitting behind me. Well, I know you're a fan of John as a well as Michelle fan, Obama. But his tweeting was terrible. <laughs> and Meghan Markle was apparently there, but I didn't see her. But we did sort of spot Stella McCartney. So it was the place to be on Monday night in London. And she was brilliant. She's just, I, I suppose I didn't know what to expect. I'd seen her earlier in the day because I went to a school in Eastlington where she gave a talk to 300 schoolgirls. This really diverse, very interesting school called Elizabeth Garrett Anderson School. That's, that was named on one of her visits to London. Yes, before. well, she'd been there. So she has this yes. long-standing relationship with this school. She went in 2009. She brought a group of them to Oxford to see her speak. Um, she also brought them over, to, some of them, to the White House. So they have this really brilliant relationship. And this school is in a really disadvantaged area. Um, half of the students get need extra funding because of their challenging backgrounds. And um, she just... So you're sitting there and it's just a sea of uh, women of young women of colour, hijabs, all kinds of young women. And just the excitement and love in the room for her was, was fantastic. How and many just, people were there, Roshan? So yeah, in the school was around 300 of the kids. They, 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 they framed it in terms of a conference. So they had a, day, they had a day off school and there was this conference held where all the children could get involved. And part of it was Michelle Obama coming to speak to them. And, and I've actually got a piece which you can read on Saturday where I talk about her advice to women on everything from relationships to career to she's very good on mentoring actually she's a big believer in mentoring because she got so many so much good mentorship herself and she doesn't think you have to wait to be an older woman before you become a mentor she's, she was talking to them about how you know you're 15 and you don't understand that a 10 or 11 year old is looking to you as the coolest thing they've ever seen and that you can start your mentorship early and also she talked about the importance of never stopping asking for help you know that the first thing she did when she went to the White House was she called in all the living first ladies and basically mind them for advice on what to do and she thinks she says like there's never time when you don't need help and always be open to that and always look for it you know and of course um, she said last week apparently it, is it in the book that Melania didn't want any help thank you very much yeah no I didn't see that actually yeah she didn't but so she was great in the school and then um, in the in the South Bank Centre she was she was just excellent on you know she spoke very well about the kind of burdens that women face but specifically women of colour you know and the fact that when she was uh, first lady, the kind of caricature type of tropes that were put on her, like angry black women, or she got so much scrutiny um, around that kind of thing. I mean, at one point she was called an ape in heels, mm. you know, and before the, the that talk. Was by a woman. 
Yeah, and before the talk on, on Monday, there was a video played of her life, which was very, very good. And, and, and she deliberately put that in, she said, because she wanted people to see, you know, what what the kind of thing that she she had to put up with, and not just her, obviously, women of colour all over the place. And she talked about her philosophy of just putting the head down, working hard, letting what she did speak for itself. And, and her famous quote is, you know, when they go low, we go high. And she really lives that. I found her really authentic and grounded, and I mean, I, this word is so bandied about, but I really did find her inspiring because she came from the south side of Chicago from a very working class background. Her father had MS. I mean, she was devastated when he died, but she was brought up with such an equal in her house. And she talks about that, having, you know, her frustrations and her anger and her very opinionated self being given free reign as a young girl. And she talked about how, never mind for just young girls generally, but again, for young women of colour, that's often not the case where they're kind of, she talked about people trying to douse down people's passion and, you know, trying to make, you know, girls be, it's too bossy or it's too loud. But she was never, she was always allowed to blossom in that way. And her frustration and anger was allowed to be present. And that made her, she says, you know. She's an astonishing woman, Roisin. I mean, she's not a politician. No. She has said she has no intention of going into politics. No. Yet she has I this extraordinary would, presence. I know there's no chance of convincing her, is there? Was know. she asked that question? She wasn't actually asked it, but um, she says very unequivocally in the in the book, which is brilliant, by the way, becoming it's a if you want to give a present to anybody who, you know, is leaning on the feminist way and it wants to. It's so readable. It's so it's like a story. She calls herself a storyteller and she says Barack is the writer in the family but she's the storyteller like it is gripping you just want to keep reading it I just want to tell you a couple of things she said that I I loved Um, and she talked about that kind of her parents letting her be who she was she was very funny about uh, well first of all how when Barack was going to run she kind of was indulging him because in her head she was like well, that's never going to happen. Like, America's never going to... So she was hilarious on that. Like, I let him away there on his little run for president of America and that's not going to happen. So it'll all be out of his system and then we can get back to a normal life. And of course, things took a very different turn. So she was funny in that. But also, she was interesting on how people look at her and Barack in terms of social media and the the sort of hashtag relationship goals thing that we all kind of, I think we've all had at one point where you see them and even the way he's looking at her, the way, you know, the, just the way they are together, it's sickening, but it's it's brilliant as well. Um, and so she says, for many people, they look at my marriage as hashtag relationship goals. I'd like to be Michelle and Barack. Well, let me tell you about Michelle and Barack, she said. <laughs> she says, what she tells young couples starting out in marriage is there's going to be times when you want to push him out the window. And, you know, she says she'd been there. She's wanted to push Barack out the window. Um, and then she said a funny thing where she said, uh, it's never the other way around because of course I'm perfect he never wants to push me out the window so she's kind of you know she's funny like that and she's really good on how relationships can't fix brokenness so she talks about how when she met Barack and he was really you know wanted to save the world and change the world she really took this as a call to kind of really work on herself and look at who she was and you know she started journaling because he was and she really started to look who who was she and wanted to be this whole person not just some kind of appendage to this man who clearly had a huge vision so she she worked on herself and she talks about the importance of that in relationships not expecting that you know anyone's brokenness can be fixed by someone else and i thought that was really interesting too like so she's great on She's just great on humanity, I think, but also just on inspiring younger women to 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 fulfil the kind of things that they can. She hates this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because she says that's not a good question. You've got all these titles, lawyer, doctor. But she says a much better question when she started to ask herself was, who do I want to be when I grow up? What are my passions? What are my likes and my dislikes? Who am I? And let the, the job thing 
come out of that rather than out of she studied law and ended up realising she hated law. And then she'd asked herself, why had she studied it? Well, she studied it because she thought she should. And she's trying to pass on the advice that that's not necessarily the way to... That is actually a fantastically Mm. inspirational question to ask of yourself. Who Who do do I I want to be? Who do you want to be? There was loads of that, Cathy, and the audience Mm. just loved her. It was was sort of like a rock concert gig rather than a book tour, you know? And she was wearing this beautiful... I shouldn't talk about what she's wearing because she did say, actually, she was defined (laughs) throughout much of her thing about how much did her shoes cost, how much, you know... Or she was... She said it very well, like, she wasn't trendy enough. She was too trendy. She wasn't wearing the right designers. You know, everything was picked apart. But she was wearing this beautiful, flowing, white jumpsuit. I thought it was a dress, first of all, because it looked kind of Grecian. But then when she stood up, it was trousers and a beautiful... Oh, it's just gorgeous. She just... She's got this... I was reading in The Guardian yesterday. People are saying she's kind of got a new look, a bit of a softer when she was a first lady... A lot of bright colours, a lot of kind of suit type things. And she's gone in for this softer, more sort of chilled out image since. And, uh, but she was wonderful. And she's absolutely authentic. Roshan. I think so. I mean, how, how do we ever know? Because no. We don't know. We've never met her. Um, but she seems to me, she's not just saying the things she thinks people want to hear. She's um, she's very good on men as role models, too, which I really liked what she said to the to the young women. She was talking about how sometimes men think that strong girls come out of strong women or inspired only by strong women. But she talked about her father and her brother as being really important in shaping her because they, you know, when her brother was learning boxing, she was taught boxing at the same time. She was treated as an equal and and that respect, you know, really helped her and showed she was doing a call out to men to, to don't don't think that you're not also going to be a solid, very influential presence in your daughter's life too. And that's really important. So. Hugely important. Mm. Well, that was obviously so a I'm very love, rewarding experience. <laughs> I'm in love just listening to you, um, and and it can, I, I suppose for once it confirms our our, our better instincts about someone. Yeah. You're not going all sceptical and saying, "Well, that probably isn't her," but you feel it is her. Yeah, and we had a couple of I met a couple of people um, there, two young women of colour who one of whom had delayed a flight in order to be there, and I, we're going to play a little clip of them just to, to hear. What, she, what that visit meant to them and for, her, for people to see her in the flesh and to hear her. My name's Olama Edamobi Abe and I'm an education consultant. Okay, and why did you come to see Michelle Obama? She's phenomenal. <laughs> um, she's inspirational. And, you know, she's one of the most, you know, for the 21st century woman, she is everything. And I'm so happy I get to be here to hear her speak. And I really feel this is probably the only opportunity I'll hear somebody this influential speak, you know, live. And I'm really looking forward to hearing her personal thoughts and just, you know, finding out about her. And what does it mean as a black woman to have someone like her representing, like, in such a huge stage? Everything. Just because, you know, she is the face of black women we don't often get to see before she was first lady. She had accomplished a lot. She's still, you know, achieving so much. Her her life didn't begin as a first lady. Um, you know, she's her education, her poise, even just you know her down to earth nature. You can't buy that. You can't make it up. And is the positive portrayal of a black woman that we very rarely see. That when we do see it, we're like, wow, I resonate so much more with her than all the other women they're trying to you know associate us with. So honestly, it's. Is everything. My name's um, Ezene. Um, I'm from London, um, although I live in Sweden. Um, so I delayed my flight to attend this event. So I'm flying out first flight tomorrow to get into work. Um, um, and I'm a consultant. Um, so I, for me, it's um, like a double blessing because um, she's being interviewed by my favourite author, Shimamanda Adichie, who's Nigerian. And um, Michelle Obama has been, for me, a huge inspiration um, as a black woman, um, a former first lady, extremely educated, but very grounded. 
started um, from a um, not so privileged um, background, um, and she's just just amazing. Um, and as a black woman, what does it mean to you in terms of representation and people for a role model? I mean, it means everything. There's there's not so many. Um, uh, there are many um, black women um, role models, but um, in terms of the media, um, she's got such good media coverage, and that's true testament to her character and who she is, because I'm sure if there was something they could pin on her, they probably would. Um, but for me, it's amazing. She's still remained her poise, her her values. Um, you know, her name's also been um, tarnished with you know some comments, but she hasn't let it um, change her character and her integrity. Um, and she's someone who really does things... Um, She's done a lot for education. Um, she really kind of puts in the work. Um, she's not just a figurehead. Um, she's genuine, I think, and she's very compassionate from what I can see. Roisin, I am more jealous now than I was. <laughs> I'm jealous. Uh, it's nice to make people jealous. <laughs> listeners, please read Roisin's piece in the Irish Times and the Weekend Review on Saturday because there is more of that. And genuinely, I think you'll want to cut it out and show it to your children, whatever one does. With yeah, the, with, she just, with she's digital. just got that voice and she speaks so well. She speaks in a really accessible way and it doesn't sound rehearsed, even though she's probably having to say the same things over and over again. She just managed to make it sound fresh and interesting. And she's funny. Like she made us laugh as well which is always a bonus but listen enough about Michelle Obama even though she's amazing what are you going to be talking about today on the women's podcast well today I am speaking to another wonderful woman uh, and I don't often interview journalists but this particular one is truly an icon in my head the Belfast journalist Maggie O'Kane who was a foreign correspondent at the Guardian for 20 years during which time she reported on the Bosnian war which saw her win British Journalist of the Year. She was also awarded an Emmy for her documentary film Baghdad, A Doctor Story. And in recent years, she has worked to create and implement The Guardian's global media campaign against female genital mutilation. Now, you think you know everything there is to know about female genital mutilation. I'm telling you, you don't. We talked about lots of things, including her work around that horrific practice, the conspiracy of silence which surrounds it, and why she believes that thousands of girls could be spared from the barbaric practice of cutting it, if the Pope came out and said it should stop. The Pope yeah, now. Well, We're not talking about no. Islamic imams. We're talking about the Pope because really certain areas of Nigeria are Catholic. Yeah, it I is. would never have thought that. No. Um, she is amazing. You know, when you ever heard her name on, on a telly, you know, broadcast, you'd just be so proud that she was from Ireland, weren't you? So She's proud. an amazing woman. So proud. And she was one of the first women out in those in those uh, in those war zones uh, back then. And I began by asking Maggie about reporting on the Yugoslav war in the early 1990s. I think the thing about being a foreign correspondent is that you at the time that we're talking about, which was the early 90s, um, the, the people who were foreign correspondents were mainly men mm. and mainly men from public schools, if you were working for a British newspaper. And actually, uh, it was also the era of the freelancers. So it was just after the fall of the Berlin War. Um, there was the Romanian Revolution, the Czech Revolution. So w- what was happening is freelancers were going out and actually starting to file back to newspapers. So what I did was having co- come through a thing called Journalists in Europe in Paris, which was a year studying in 1989 and having experienced the Berlin Wall and being through those revolutions, I kind of realized if you got yourself to a place quickly enough, um, and you were able to report back that you could probably make a living out of it. So I decided to go to uh, Bosnia, um, knew very little about it, turned, out, turned up in Belgrade, um, 
as everybody will know now, is the is the capital of Serbia and uh, really started from there. Maggie, when you talk about just turning up in, in Belgrade, I mean, one of the things that struck me when I was reading, reading back, trying to remember the Yugoslav wars, I mean, we had never heard the term ethnic cleansing before. No, we hadn't. And I actually think that hugely informed my 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 journalism at the time, because I felt that I grew up in Belfast and I understand ethnic uh, diversity. I understand going to school as a Catholic and not knowing a Protestant. You know, I understand being, uh, you know, in fights with Protestant kids when, when we were 12, you <laughs> yeah. know, in North Belfast. Uh, so so that was a completely divided ethnic society um, and still is to a certain extent. But what we find in Yugoslavia was that these were, ch- you know, Tito's children. They'd all grown up together. They had been educated together. Um, they lived in communist Yugoslavia quite happily until you had the sort of absurdity of the Milosevic purges, Karadzic, the, 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 the leaders who were determined to divide people. So in a way, I, I felt it was very useful for me coming from a Belfast background to go and report in Yugoslavia. Because you could actually expose what what turned out very clearly to be the lie of it all, that it was about dividing people who instinctively had had grown up together. Yeah. And were you constantly reminded that at that time, Maggie, of the situation in Northern Ireland and how how things could become if it were allowed to develop in Northern Ireland? Would would that have been an issue in your head or were you very much focused on, on the former Yugoslavia? It wasn't constantly in my head, but when I was listening to the propaganda that was coming out of Belgrade and from from the Croatian side, I was saying this isn't a reflection of what I'm seeing on the ground. What I'm seeing on the ground are people who actually have grown up together. What I am seeing in the ground are militia groups being sent in to in a way, turn a community against each other, you know, take out the Muslim men, people who didn't even think of themselves as Muslims, separate them, put them in camps, start a cycle of revenge. So when I saw saw that in a way being orchestrated, I'm thinking this isn't coming from the heart of these people because these people are not divided. They're being divided for political reasons or mm. political expediency or to pursue the dream of a purist Serbia or a purist Croatia. So I think it was understanding what real division was, because I'd grown up with it in Belfast, to go into the Yugoslav situation to realise that this was being created as part of a political experiment with tragic consequences. Now, Maggie, I suppose... We could call it a high point in your journalistic career or a really low point in terms of Europe. Uh, was was you coming across those that basically were, what were concentration camps? Yes, I mean, it was it was uh, it was the Omarska Priodor. It was I, I, I just draw people's memory back to those incredible pictures of the emaciated men lined up um, that were in the front page in The Guardian. They were the front page of The Irish Times. Uh, it was these these camps that had been created by the Bosnian Serbs to hold the Muslim population when the ethnic cleansing was going on. And I actually, I didn't physically get to them. What happened was I went to a place called Banyaluka, which I describe as, for me, a personal sort of heart of darkness, which I went to on on a bus dressed as a kind of, um, you know, Serbian housewife, uh, just in sort of traditional dress and was able to sort of sit quietly in the bus and get right into the heart of this sort of engine room of the ethnic cleansing, which was Banyaluka. 
And I actually didn't really understand what was happening. All we knew was that thousands and thousands of people were fleeing this area. So I went into Banya Luka and checked into the only hotel there and realised I was the only person in the hotel, which was a bit worrying. Mm. Um, and then in the middle of the night, this young guy came and knock, knocked on the door. And he said, uh, I have to talk to you about what I've seen. And um, I said, come in. And he was working with the Red Cross. He was about 25. And he spent the next three hours describing what was happening in these camps in Priador, in Omarska, how the um, Muslim men and boys were being taken, how they were being tortured in a place called the White House. Um, a very, very detailed description. And he was a young Serb who was horrified by what was happening. So I then had to go and find people who had fled from Omarska and Priador and interview them in, in real depth about uh, what was happening and their stories completely coincided about what was happening. And when I wrote the story, which was all over the front of The Guardian, Karadic, who was the leader of the Bosnian Serbs, was actually in, in London, had just arrived, and he was on Newsnight that night. And um, Jeremy Paxman, I remember, said to him, what have, you, what have you got to say about this? What have you got to say about these camps? And he said, you know, it's completely misrepresenting the situation. I invite people to go and have a look. And the Guardian and Penny Marshall from ITN actually took mm -hmm. him up on the offer. And then we saw those first pictures, which horrified the world of these emaciated men uh, and people who'd been held in the camps. So, I mean, it was a sort of journalistically, it was one of those moments when you think, well, that was quite a useful thing to do. Yes. Um, yeah, <laughs> indeed it was. And anybody who was alive at that stage, Maggie, will never forget those pictures of those emaciated men. And Maggie, you wound up in Sarajevo in 1993. Um, and I actually read read back on a piece of yours from the archives last night. But it is the most wonderfully written piece. The first dead body of Bosnia's war was a Serb shot at a wedding uh, in a suburb on March 2nd. And you talk about the streets being barricaded and... The, 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 this white eagle in the back of your car, a so-called white eagle in the back with his black machine gun, Kalashnikovs hanging on the back of doors. It must have been a genuinely terrifying place to be. Or were you able to put that aside in some way? Is that, is that what foreign correspondents do? God, it's a very good question. What do, what do we do? I think we wake up every morning and we panic and we think, oh, what's the story I'm going to yeah. tell today? Yeah. And uh, and then you go out and you try and look for something that's that's different, that's that reflects the situation as it's happening. And I suppose, the, the you know, the memories, the things that come to my mind is, you, you know, you, you just go out and you, you, you go to cafes, you talk to people. And there are so many, you know, stories about... Uh, people that I was with or people that were were killed or the body of a young photographer that we, we brought out of Sarajevo um, or, you know, the woman who lost all of her three children in a raid where they were all they were all massacred. It's very it's you, you go out and you, you look for, for, for a story that reflects what's happening. You try and write it to the best of your ability with as much um, compassion and honesty absolute accuracy and honesty about the words that they say and humanity and then you uh take a deep breath <laughs> and you go and have a drink mm. um and you know i think for me uh, the, the process of writing was often very cathartic at night you know you'd take about two hours to try and pull together what you'd written and then you you you, you do the same thing the next the next day and just try and um 
get to the heart of things, which is a lot was a lot easier then. You know, what we did in Sarajevo compared to, say, working in Syria, working in Yemen. Uh, Marie Colvin, I knew well and had worked with her. As you know, she was killed in Syria. I mean, we, we were working. It, it was comparatively speaking, um, I won't say safe, but um, a lot, a lot safer than it is now. And also we weren't targets. Yes. You know, yes. I, I, I was in Banyaluka. I interviewed uh, Serbs in Mostar after a massacre there. They they saw me as a kind of amusing interlude to the the days of the killing that I only found out afterwards when I saw the Hague reports that the guy, the guys that I'd been talking to, like Milan Lukic, had, you know, put 72 uh Bosnian Muslims in a in a in a in a house and burned them alive. Um, you know, Milan Lukic is talking to me and you know offering me whiskey and I'm thinking, uh, don't really like the look of this guy, but no real idea of what went on. So I look back and think I was naive, but it was also a much less dangerous time to be journalist because now Milan Lukic or his equivalent would say, right, we need to get rid of this woman really fast yeah. because of the Hague, because of the war crimes. This was pre-Hague. Mm. This was the day when time when a sort of young young journalist wandering around the battlefield were kind of a curiosity more than anything. I know, and the, what we're living through now, Maggie, with the with poor Kasogji in in uh, in Turkey in the in the. Saudi Arabian consulate in Turkey. It really has become very dangerous times indeed for journalists. Um, Maggie, so that was, I mean, you are garlanded with, with awards, obviously, from, from the early 90s. And what happened next? Was it, was it, was it always, was, it, was there a little bit of adrenaline there that was never quite satisfied ever again? Or what happened? Oh, my God. <laughs> I have to think what happened. What happened is, I think... I think two things happened. I think uh, a, f- a friend of mine, Kurt Shork, was killed in Sierra Leone, and Kurt Shork was a um, uh, worked for Reuters and was one of these incredibly uh, careful journalists. And I always trusted his judgment. And then there was a realization that actually, you—it's uh, not really about judgment; it's about luck. And another friend of mine, Alan Lund, said to me once, "You know, it's like Russian roulette. You know, you keep, you keep." We keep taking the risks all the time and the bullet gets you in the end. And um, so I began to I began to come, become fearful. I became a mother, which was a hugely important yes. point because my fear was to be separated from my child. And one of the most terrifying things that happened to me, you know, wasn't a bullet in East Timor that came so close to my ear that it the ear popped, uh, which I didn't have time to think about. But the idea of being held because I was briefly taken by the Bosnian Serbs, was being held, held, uh, kept away, so I couldn't get, couldn't get back home to Billy. So I became, I think, um, slightly dysfunctional and a bit useless as a current <laughs> foreign correspondent because I had new fears. Yes, and I kind of felt that the job deserved people who would uh, give it all they had done, as I had done, and then. The other thing that was quite significant is it is I had a number of miscarriages between my son, Billy, um, and when I came back from the Afghan war, I was I was pregnant with my uh, daughter, Ruby, and I really wanted to keep the baby. So I just said, I'm I'm uh, I'm done with uh, climbing mountains into Afghanistan. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to be I want this child. Uh, so that's the end. That was what happened to me, really. 
Well, it certainly wasn't the end because you, you certainly haven't let go in the meantime. Um, as I say, you've gone on winning awards. You, you won the Red Cross Award very recently for your international work. You have moved on, Maggie, to something terribly important. And uh, I want to say at least once, twice, there's a documentary on one, on RTE One, on Saturday at two o'clock, which is produced by your brother, Michael. And I know you feature on it, which is about female genital mutilation, which has become your great mission to end that. God, it, fun, it sounds weird hearing somebody else <laughs> say that for you. Uh, I suppose it has. And uh, I think one of the things that I've sort of learned is that you you can make a difference to a certain extent. But I think less and less as a journalist, you can it's, it's harder to make a difference because of the, the dangers, because of uh, the fact that the media is so diverse and that, you know, if you made a documentary 10 years ago and it was on Channel 4, you know, it'd be watched by 6 million people. Now, if you make one, it might be watched by 600,000. So I just felt, you know, in terms of an impact, I came across, I wasn't looking for something to make an impact. I mean, I just came across a female genital mutilation totally, totally by accident um, in that I was doing some work in Kenya and discovered people talking about this. I had no idea it existed. I know I had no idea it was related to women dying in childbirth or fistula or all those horrendous things that uh, women go through, particularly in Africa. And, um, you know, 200 million women and girls in this world today are living with female genital mutilation. And it's estimated that one girl is cut every six seconds. And when we say cut, it's like their 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 clitoris and their labia are removed. And in the most extreme forms, which is very common in lots of countries, their vagina is actually sewn up. And it's part of an ancient, you know, ritual of controlling females and controlling female sexuality. And which, which is not religious, Maggie. It's, it's, it's nothing to do with Islam, I understand. No, it's nothing to do with it. It's practiced. I mean, most the the, the the Nigeria, which is the has one of the countries which has a huge amount of FGM. All the southern states are Catholic. And this is the moment where, you know, where is the Pope in a way? You know, if the Pope came out and said, you need to stop cutting girls, hundreds of thousands of girls would be saved. You know, if we had a um, something read out at mass, uh, it's a very religious country, particularly in the south. So it's the Catholics who are cutting in the south of Nigeria. It's Muslims cu- uh, cu- cutting in other countries. It's um, it's animus in parts of Africa. It's about controlling female sexuality and it's about controlling girls. And I'm not saying this is some sort of, you know, it really, in a way, it should be the biggest feminist issue of our time in, oh, and human rights issue in terms of what are we doing to be cutting the genitalia of pubescent girls or in some cases children, but often it's done at puberty. And I ask anybody to think about their own daughters. You know, the psychological impact of being held down by those you love who are doing this because they love you and because they think they should be doing it to protect your honour. What does that do to the mind of a child in terms of trauma and removing them from the education system and removing them from any sense of, of power in, in societies that need women to be to be powerful. So I don't want to go off on a rant. <laughs> well, but I think it's worth ranting are. about. I mean, in this documentary, there is a woman, Maggie, whom you clearly know very well, who was cut four times because the, 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 the woman who was doing the cutting felt she hadn't got it right the first time. It's, it's, it, is, it is not just one, one cutting session, I gather, in, in some cases. It, it is beyond barbaric. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, 
it, it is beyond barbaric. And also, you know, one in 12 women in parts of Kenya and Somalia are dying in childbirth. One of the key reasons they're dying in childbirth is when they're cut, the scar tissue around the vagina means that that's the the cervix can't expand. The, the, the genitalia are so damaged and scarred. The cervix can't expand to give birth normally. So women are literally, and I say this, women are literally bursting because they're so constricted in birth uh, that it's it's leading to death. It's leading to fistula, which I'm sure you're all, you're all familiar with, which is literally the ripping from the anus to the vagina because the perineum is scarred and won't stretch again to give birth. It's... It, and the fact is, this is just done because people believe that they have to go through with this tradition. It's been done for 5,000 years. It's been done since the princesses were discovered in the in the pharaoh's tombs in Cairo. You know, this has been around since the beginning of man. And it's continuing because people don't understand the medical impacts of it. If a woman dies in childbirth, it's, it's just unfortunate. If a child dies, it's just what happens in countries where one in five children are don't reach the age of three. But people need to know the medical evidence. We have radios, we have TVs, we have local languages. It's not hard. We have religious leaders. We just back from Mali, where we had a national gathering of all the religious leaders um, in, in Mali. Oh, well, the beginning of one. We're having another one in April. And we just broadcast the medical implications of what's happening. And there were religious leaders in tears in the room. And the reason why FGM continues is because it's a conspiracy of silence. Just nobody talks about it. And as long as no one talks about it, then it will continue. But when the facts are out there, people are willing to renounce it, want to renounce it and are horrified. So... Now, Maggie, let's let, let's let's bring this a little bit closer to home. I mean, I know one of uh, Michael O'Kane's entry point uh, to this documentary was through this amazing Irish woman, uh, Somali-born Irish woman called Ifra Ahmed, whom yes. you got together with. I mean, I, I think bringing that back to Ireland is fascinating because according to these figures, nearly 5,000 women and girls have arrived and made new lives here who have undergone female genital mutilation. Well, it's very it, it, uh, in the migrant populations in in Ireland and indeed all through Europe. Uh, many many young women have arrived who have already been mutilated. It's particularly in Somalia, it's over ninety percent. In Egypt, it's over ninety percent. So there will be there are women who are who are carrying those scars with them. Among them, Ifra Ahmed, who's a totally extraordinary woman, who, who came to Ireland um, in her early twenties, and she's she's going to be the subject of a film called A Girl from Mogadishu. Um, which has just been made by an Irish filmmaker called Mary McGuckian, uh, which is a, literally a Hollywood movie, which will be out in about six months' time. But Ifra has been, sing- not single-handedly, she's part of a, a group of, of uh, other activists, but is leading in East Africa, in Somalia. She wants to take it into Djibouti. She's managed to persuade the president to consider a law. She's managed to get the religious leaders on side. She's got this unrelenting energy, partly because what, what what happened to her determination to end this and has just made a film um, which has been about, about the first girl to die of FGM in Somalia. First girl to be um, the fir- first film about a girl who has died from FGM. Girls are dying from FGM in Somalia all the time. Decca, who the film is about, bled to death over two days because she was so the cut was so botched. 
Um, and so Decca's film, uh, Decca's story, which was made by Ifra, has been seen by over 10 million people on Somali national TV and then broadcast to the migrant communities in Ireland, in France, in Germany, in Minnesota. And the word is getting out there, thanks to people like Ifra, that um, this this is what happens when you cut your girl. It's a heartbreaking film. Just tell me a little bit, as far as you know, this is not, this practice is not continuing in Ireland, is it? I am not familiar with the Irish situation. I know more about the UK situation, which I can, one would expect would be slightly similar because it's the same sort of demographic people coming from Somalia. In some cases, people are often brought home at, uh, for cutting, at the cutting seasons, as they're called, which is usually the school holidays. So um, that is the biggest threat. Um, but it's an expensive trip home. Um, it's difficult for, for many migrant families. But we don't know the scale of how much of it is happening because it's obviously illegal and covert. But we have no doubt that um, certainly in the UK, people are kids are being brought home for summertime cutting, as we call it. I mean, I, I've interviewed them, who, who girls who were brought back during the summer holidays to be cut. It takes about a month to heal, so they have to be. Their legs are usually bound, and they they stay uh, st- sitting, lying for a month. So it needs to be during the holiday period. So. You know, if anybody's worried or there's kids talking about um, going home for a wedding or, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to create a kind of atmosphere of fear. But at the same time, if anybody has any doubt in England, now it's a process where, you know, um, alarms can be raised with the school. Uh, schools are very aware about it. They can ask questions and just, um, you know, kids need to be protected. And one of the difficulties about this is it's been for, for many, many decades, it's gone on because there's a sort of sensibility about c- cultural practices. Well, we're way beyond that. And I have to say, you know, any pushback we've ever got has never been about, you know, entering into sensitive cultural areas. You know, these kids do need to be protected. So if anyone has any doubts or kids are talking about going home in, in 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 school, then um, it's worth asking questions. Ask the question. And yeah. Maggie, finally, uh, that isn't all you're doing, of course. Uh, you're you're continuing in your journalism and film work, but you're also now training young journalists across Africa. Yeah, I mean, the thing about this is that the likes of us, you know, in London or uh, the, the whole model for aid has to be our whole model for change needs to be to give give the power to the ground and give the power to, to journalists within the countries that we're working in, like Kenya and Mali, to talk to their local religious leaders, to to get them on the radio, get them on TV. I mean, one of the things about, about aid is it's often sort of delivered at a distance by experts. But actually, the experts in communicating in a community are the journalists from that community, the religious leaders from the community and the activists from that community. So we're bringing those together with our kind of campaign academies so we can basically leave behind uh, um, support, uh, leave behind, but continue to support um, 
airtime. You have to buy airtime. It's as blunt as that. You know, if you want to get on air with these messages, you need you need to buy the airtime. It's a different model from uh, from the West. So there's a really interesting Irish movement here. And I, I just sort of want to talk about that because I think that there's been, I keep bumping into Irish people who are involved in this. Uh, the first film we made, Jaha's Promise, was made by an Irish director, Patrick Farrelly. Uh, Mary McGuckian's just made Ifra's film. Ifra is an Irish citizen. Uh, we started this campaign, myself and another woman from Derry. The biggest funder of FGM, private funder, is the Human Dignity Foundation, which is also based in Ireland. So I would say there's a fantastic Irish movement um, that's going to end FGM, I really hope. Well, and posted uh, the Spirits of the Women's podcast, <laughs> Maggie. That, that really <laughs> is good news. This is really a powerful documentary of Michael's, though, and I really want people to pay attention. If they want to hear the voices of those women, this is where to hear them this weekend. Uh, on Saturday at 2pm. Maggie O'Kane, it's a genuine privilege to talk to you. Um, we wish you luck with your future endeavours. You're never going to stop by the sound of things. Thank you so much for talking to the Women's Podcast. Thanks a million. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to Maggie O'Kane for speaking to me. I don't know if you picked up on it, but she was, she told me, in a cupboard at the time. If you want to hear more from Maggie, you can catch her in the RTE Doc on One about female genital mutilation, The Cot, on Radio 1 this Saturday afternoon at 2pm. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes, give us a review and tell all your friends about it. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.